Welcome to Korean Ruins, where this week we're just one of many archaeological media outputs. And some of them are significantly better funded than us. <laughs> yeah, how are you doing, buddy? You're right. Oh, I'm all right. Good to see you. It's good to be back podding. It feels like forever. Yeah, it's taken a while, hasn't it? This this year, this this first couple of months of the year have have been tough tough going. I've found it's certainly dragged on. It feels like we're we're stepping into the light though by getting back into the, the old pod booth, as it were, or the virtual pod booth. That's absolutely, absolutely. And we're back and we've got another podcast and we've got a fantastic participant today in the form of Toby Driver, who's a senior investigator for Aerial Survey for the Royal Commission for Ancient Monuments and Historic Monuments in Wales. Boom, first time. And in Welsh, Lawrence. <laughs> Toby, could you hit, that with, hit us up with uh, the Welsh version of that, please? It's uh, Commission Breen Hainel Henebion Cymru. How does that translate? So it's the Royal Commission for Old Things in Wales. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Toby, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. It's good to have you along, um, and and uh, we're looking forward to delving into our traditional uh, podcast style with, with you uh, very soon. But we'll, we'll kick off the show by just just going over a few things that have caught our attention over the last uh, couple of months. I guess it's it's mm. been a while since we d- we've done a podcast, so we can we can keep it quite broad. Um, and there's been a lot of things. There's been a lot of things to catch up on. Um, not least in the, in the last two weeks alone, there's been tons of media um, in terms of archaeology. So. Lost Stone Circle of Stonehenge? Is that's that, the that dominating the, one, isn't it? Yeah, the, the TV documentary. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Just down the road from you, isn't it, Toby? It is. It's, <laughs> it's a real treat, actually, to see West Wales on uh, primetime television with everybody talking about it. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a novelty uh, and it's also a great thing to see. Are you going to be putting in a bid to try and get the stones returned at any point? Yeah, it's working on stones, you know. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's an interesting tale, isn't it? The, uh, the bundling up of a monument from West Wales and, and taking it wholesale to Salisbury Plain, you know. And there's been a huge amount of debate uh, after the programme as well, you know, on, on all sides, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the debate's been really interesting. And I, if, if anything, it's brought, at least it's brought some archaeological discussion to the mainstream media and, and got people talking to each other, whether it's positive or negative, I'm not sure. Yeah. But I, for me, personally, the biggest debate is um, for, for my 30th birthday, I got this fantastic book. I don't know if you, if you know it at all, Toby. Oh, dear, dear. <laughs> <laughs> it's called The Pembrokeshire Historic Landscapes from the Air by uh, Toby Driver. I could not find this lost stone circle in there anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Give us a chance. It's 2007. Uh, I was just wondering, actually, that we want to do a 2027 uh, 20-year special edition of that, actually, and just replace all the photographs. That'd be quite nice. It's a lovely but, uh, book. Um... Oh. Hope you enjoy it. Yeah. No, I yeah. got. I was. Um, I was. Funny <laughs> enough, I was working not not the year they found the stone circle, but I was up doing some survey work for that that project in the Priscelli's on my thirtieth birthday, and it was a a present from oh, a right. friend of ours, Kate Willem. So yeah, it's yeah. a it's a good good <laughs> gift to have that one. Yeah, we dropped by the team digging a few times. We dropped by them all the way back from Scomer in two thousand eighteen, um, and caught up with everybody on the sort of trench edge, which is good, but. You know, it's so near, but then so far, because it was every September they were working, wasn't it? I think down to right. Kamar and all the other sites. And, and usually September, we're, we're just in the middle of something else. So, uh, but um, they've thrown an awful lot of time at that project and an awful lot of brilliant science. I think they've probably pushed on the science so much more uh, in, the, in the last few years. Uh, and particularly the lithology, you know, the scientific analysis of those stones. So it's not just, uh, do the stones look like the ones on the Priscelli Hills? It's actually 
the, the exact the point. DNA, is, yeah. You know, you've got the best guy. Yeah, the best guys in the business doing it. And that came over really well in the documentary. Mm. Um, completely new, cutting-edge stuff. It's fantastic. Mm. No, it was good. It was very, very interesting. Good good food for thought. Mm. Still plenty of evidence to be found, I suspect. But at the same time, I, I think a really good stepping stone towards towards sort of delivering that theory. Yeah, it's a busy area. Focusing, I mean, I've been doing a lot of the aerial photography for um, the project, though you've know, got um, some uh, Adam Stanford and things on the ground for the, the UAV doing all the modelling, uh, but still on uh, in the summer for the drought, we've been getting the aircraft up over Mike Parker Pearson study area, getting brand new monuments out. Huge, one of the biggest Bronze Age Barrow cemeteries came out there about uh, two, three miles down from the Stonehenge outcrop in 2018. And it's one of the biggest ones on the west coast of Wales. And if we hadn't have been targeting those green fields on the sort of damp slopes of the Preseli Hills for his project, we would have flown on somewhere else where we knew we were going to get results. So it's actually targeted a lot of brains and a lot of survey power in that part of Pembrokeshire and yielded, you know, a huge amount of radiocarbon dates, new sites, everything. Oh, so yeah, it's, it's gotta be good. Yeah. That's uh, it's yeah. something I've I've loved about that project because I was fortunate enough to go to and join in a few years ago. And they it's fair to say they've been looking for for the the original circle for quite some time. Mm. But through that looking they found so much and it was staggering. <laughs> the year I was there it was I think an Iron Age enclosure, yeah. a, t- a huge prehistoric landscapes just because you're looking for something else, it's classic. But it's, well, I guess yeah, that's yeah. it. I think um, the, the, whilst the program focused on the the, the the jewel in the ground, so to speak, the number of sites, as you, you've both said, they found everyone, and the Iron Age, the, the Iron Age in that area is just mm. unreal. The number of Iron Age sites and sort of additions, but it's kind of a byproducts is, and, and massively overlooked as part of this research. <laughs> I think, yes, huge disappointment uh, when they found Iron Age or Bronze Age. Uh, and they even had a Roman Villa. Yeah, Roman one Villa, one. yeah. They, yeah, they, yeah. They did geophysics in a field with a boulder in the corner. They, they popped up a new Roman Villa, which is not near anybody's sort of field of view. And I, I dug a villa up in mid Wales, you know, uh, which is pretty remote. Um, and this one was even more remote, not where anybody's... Uh, expecting it and if unless you're doing high resolution geophysics in that field you wouldn't have found it no, never no. shown from the air so um yeah it's brought a huge number of blessings to the area i guess yeah yeah good yeah good program and then last night i guess the the great british dig aired after its pilot uh, yeah yesterday so um four, four episode series i believe and lots of exciting things yeah. to, be, to be seen and enjoyed Featuring our good friend Chloe, who we've we've done some episodes with in the past. It's great to see her doing really well. And it looks like a a sort of a return to form in a way for archaeology TV, doesn't it? Getting into people's back gardens and kind of digging with the community in a really nice way. And I I must admit, I series linked it and haven't watched it. We're going to do a a rewatch show. Yeah, Yeah, should we do a live (laughs) Twitch stream of me and you watching it for our viewer? Did you manage to catch (laughs) it at all, Toby? I, I I saw about 10 minutes last night in between other things. Um, it's in the middle of a Roman fort, isn't it? I think which is presumably going to help the uh, the fines ratio uh, there. But uh, <laughs> uh, it's it's great. Everybody wants to dig in their back garden. I used to do it as a kid. Um, uh, we had a couple of friends ring beforehand to ask if we we're watching it, who aren't archaeologists because they, they they want to see it. And you know, it's Hugh Dennis doing doing it as well. He's great. So um, it looks like a perfect mix, really. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But enough about telly. Um, Toby, what, as the guest, um, what about yourself? What's caught your attention in the last few weeks? Well, uh, there's a few things that sort of popped up, really. Um, uh, I guess mostly, mostly in my mind tonight is, is Victor Ambrose's uh, passing. Was that yesterday, I think, mm. uh, the artist from the Time team. 
And I, I sort of followed Time Team on and off, and 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 you know the the reconstruction drawings are always part of it. But I think um, a lot of stuff on Twitter and stuff yesterday uh, about his work. Um, it does remind you how very important you know drawn reconstructions are. Uh, an artist working on something. I see Alice Roberts is uh, posting about the work he did for her Celts book as well. Uh, and other art reconstruction artists, you know, who I, I just love seeing their work, um, sort of saying how much is missed. Um, and we're in a digital age, we've got 3D walkthrough, virtual, heaven knows what nowadays. But, you know, when you go to an archaeological site in the rain, out of mobile so phone signal, um, you know, if there's a nice panel there with a really evocative hill fort or a Roman fort with mud and Roman soldiers walking around, I, I, I still... Uh, still gets me. I, you still need that, and, and obviously, you know, everybody sort of realise what they what they miss now that Victor's gone. Absolutely. I must admit, I was scrolling through Twitter yesterday, and the, it's staggering the breadth of impact his works had, and the, mm. the number of different books it pops up in. I, I had no idea. So it was a it was a real day of celebration on Twitter for Victor. I think mm. and it was it was so nice to see that, and uh, and if if. Any of my students are listening, they know I'm a, a sucker for a reconstruction. I, I fill my lectures with them because it's, it's always nice to see a, a fleshed out past. And I think Victor was one of the absolute masters of it. And mm. a bit of a, I, I think it's possibly a side effect of that. Today I saw, I think it was Wessex Archaeology's illustrator doing a live drawing on Twitter. Oh, or right. Open Facebook. And it was, it was yeah. so nice to watch along. And it just kind of, yeah, made me think of Victor mm -hmm. again. Well, we've been fortunate to work with Tim Taylor a couple of times, haven't we, Derek? And he, he always would say that Victor, was one of the main members of the team. He he brought it to life. He's the one that the public always talked about in terms of actually understanding what they'd done in terms of outputs and, and discoveries. And yeah, he he had a skill, the individual. And yeah, as you say, you say, Toby, a lot of influences on a lot of different people. Mm, yeah, exactly. But it's, yeah, it's lots of nice things out there. I mean, I, I always get caught by the, uh, the island stories. I think it's a few days ago that... Uh, uh, the uh, press release by the National Trust Scotland about some Iron Age discoveries on St Kilda um, by some guard archaeology work in 2017-2019 uh, as well. And uh, that always draws my attention, I must say, you know, digging on St mm -hmm. Kilda. That would be a great thing to do. You know, so I you know, saw those discoveries and uh, felt a pang of envy there, I must say. Oh, very nice. <laughs> I'll save the envy for now. Yeah, we'll come back yeah, to that. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what about you, Derek? What about you? Oh, see, I've got a few things. It's, as it's been so long between pods, I've got a long list, but um, I think I'm going to gloss over the, uh, the the serious ones like the, the crippling cuts to higher education funding in archaeology that have been proposed or the, uh, the slight uh, readjustment of what freedom of speech means in heritage. And maybe we'll have a future episode about those. And I want to rather talk about two interesting but quite short things, thankfully, that have caught my eye. The first is just Again, it's something that popped up on Twitter. The world of, of lockdown it seems to lead me to get most of my archaeology consumption from Twitter at the moment. But it's um, it's it's not explicitly archaeologically related. I'd say it's GIS related, but it relates to kind of seeing the world through maps and and kind of experiencing a world through maps in a way that I've never quite experienced before. And it's a website called Radio Garden. I don't know if either of you have come across it yet. It's um, it's a globe just like Google Earth, but every single radio station that has a digital output is mapped on there and you can just move around the world listening to music from different countries. I saw that and this week, yeah, but I haven't gone onto it to look at it, but people have been raving about it. 
absolutely brilliant. And the, it just, it feels like traveling. It feels like you're there. I, I, I instantly went to Thessaly in the first instance to Radio Carditza. <laughs> and it just felt like I was in in a car in Carditza driving out to our site. It, it moved me there. And it just made me think about the importance of sound in experiencing places. And the fact that I can sit here remotely experiencing the world through audio alone via this wonderful little website. It's great. Was it almost phenomenological? Yeah, yeah. We're getting close. Should, it was, should, you, are you saying people should go back to a previous episode of ours, Derek, looking at uh, sound in archaeology? People should go back to every one of our previous episodes. <laughs> uh, but moving, moving on quickly, the other, the other thing that I just wanted to give a quick shout out to, really, because it, it caught my eye today, and I just thought, do you know what? This is one of those things where. COVID is bleak. It's done a lot of harm to the world, but some things, some of the adaptations to COVID are particularly strong and particularly useful. And I just wanted to really flag up, and it's worth saying I've got no affiliation with this whatsoever. This, is, this isn't a plug in any sense. The um, Experimental Archaeology Conference this year, the Exarch Conference, it's worth having a look at the programme because they have taken the the idea of a remote conference and turned it into a world tour. So there's um, 120 experiments spanning four days, uh, starting the 29th of March from around the globe. And it truly is a global event. But it's also a free conference. It's being streamed on multiple platforms. It's accessible. It's on Facebook. It'll be on YouTube. There's a side discussions in Discord. And it, it feels like every effort's been made to privilege accessibility over everything else. And... The, I mean, the, the breadth of the conference alone is enough to celebrate, but that element of just making it open and inviting anyone to participate is, I, I think it's a, a really positive thing to do. And I, I, I know... I know from organising real life conferences in the past, that it's never easy to organise a conference in any way. But to see something done with this ambition on in this scale, I just wanted to give a, a virtual pat on the back to the organisers, really. That's incredible. I, mean, I Sorry, Toby, go for it. I was just going to say, this is something that we're not going to go back from, are we? I mean, um, we just had last week in Wales the Digital Pass Conference, which I wasn't involved in this year, but my colleagues in the Royal Commission organised had like 500 people signed up. Um, and uh, with the digital conference, you miss the apres ski, don't you? you miss the, the networking over lunch, <laughs> uh, balancing your sandwiches in your, in your, your water all the evening, mm. uh, uh, talking about stuff. <laughs> uh, but, you know, 500 people signed up from around the world, speakers from South America and Australia, a diversity of speakers who maybe can't travel, you know. Um, and um, uh, how would you then go back to a sort of driving to somewhere next year and paying a lot of money to get there and staying in hotels when you could have that access. It's an interesting discussion that's come out of lockdown, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, very much so. And is, is that diversity, I think, is a really key point there, I think, as you say, Toby. But also just the cost of these things are a lot cheaper. So the accessibility seems seems a lot more exciting. Um, I, I have to admit, I've been disappointed by a few of the larger organisations, which which haven't perhaps been as ambitious as they, they could have been in terms of Really, uh, you got six hundred. Did you say six hundred, five hundred people turn up to? A five hundred signed up. Yeah, and that's up two to three hundred listening to sessions. Fantastic, which is, which is amazing. Yeah. When if you think of people like the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists who have a membership base, I mean, why not grab the bull by the horns and make it really cheap, really accessible, get new members, uh, 
provide something for students that that's um that are perhaps at a bit of a loose end or desperate for for input and con- to consume information but um but still yeah um as you say something we're not going to go back from certainly yeah i mean i, I I'm sort of anticipating something of a blended future maybe but at the moment certainly for at least for my students it's incredible to be able to flag these these events to them and send them along so how about you, Lawrence? What's what? Anything else caught your eye? Well, uh, the only thing I wanted to finish on, if, if that's all right, is in one hour they'll be landing the NASA. Um, what's it called? The per, per, perseverance. Per, is it? The perseverance. <laughs> that's it. I couldn't read my own handwriting <laughs> then. Perseverance <laughs> rover is going to be landing in on Mars, isn't it? I that's quite that's, exciting, isn't it? Isn't it? I, I uh, there was when I saw that, I thought there's something there that all three of us that would will probably nerd out about going <laughs> this evening. So <laughs> I just thought I'd bring it up. I mean, it's future space archaeology. It's it's incredible technology in terms of its. It's got a drone that that lowers down. It drops the, a drone uh, off, yeah, and then flies off. Yeah, just incredible. And um, I, I hopefully we will. We're hearing with a risk of putting some spoilers forward, but we'll hear about some of your work with more recently with drones as well, Toby. And I know Derek and myself have worked with drones in the past, but to have a, a unmanned aerial vehicle dropping off a, a sort of um, rover that's going to go and explore Mars is just incredible. So uh, it, it blows your mind that the tech people they've got working on that for it to decelerate in seven minutes from seven times the speed of a bullet to walking pace, then get lowered on by the cables, lower it down to the ground, for heaven's sake. You know, that drops a drone off. I mean, uh, if it all works, it's going to be great. Yeah, yeah. It's the size of a car, isn't it, as well, this, this thing? <laughs> it's <No>. brilliant. It's <laughs> amazing. So yeah. I thought it would be worth, just worth finishing the round off up, saying that in an hour of us recording this, they'll have dropped a lovely rover on Mars and hopefully it'll have all gone smoothly. So, anyway. So, yeah, in an ideal world, when every, when anyone's listening to this, they can go off and look at the pictures that have been hopefully beamed back by then, um, depending Ooh. on how long our editing yeah. process goes on this time. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies to all of our listeners for the last one. <laughs> right, moving swiftly on from oh, my slow editing. Hang on, I'm just going to let the dog. dogs. Uh, <laughs> Ringo. So moving away from space then, but not necessarily away from UAVs or UASs. Toby, welcome to the podcast proper. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, as, a, as a way of kind of getting to know you for our listeners, do you think you could talk us through a little bit about your career to date and how you kind of got from the beginnings of your career in ruins to where you are now? Yeah, indeed. Um, uh, you know, it's uh, it's been uh, an interesting journey. It's my 50th year this year, so I'm getting old now. It's quite worrying, isn't it? You start reflecting... <laughs> On things, you start going back through photo albums from the 1980s of excavations or early 90s uh, when you're digging and things, and start, you know, looking at where you went and stuff. But I think looking back, you know, I can't be unhappy at all. Um, I guess I've always been um, interested in old things uh, uh, and uh, archaeology. You know, even when I was a kid, I, we used to go on holidays to North Wales. I grew up a bit of a bit of Hampshire, so Fleet near Aldershot to six and out to East Anglia, Suffolk. Where I sort of, you know, really grew up there in Suffolk, uh, but we'd go on holidays into to North Wales and um, go around standing stones, uh, Roman forts and stuff, with my mum and dad and everything when I was uh, little. And uh, and then back in Suffolk, where there's not so much visible archaeology above ground, uh, sort of digging up uh, back gardens, bottle dumps and things in the old houses we were living in and stuff. So that sort of set the path, I suppose. Um, uh, a levels in Cardiff. Uh, I always wanted to go back to Wales because my grandparents were Welsh. My mum's half Welsh, or mum's Welsh, you know, so I'm half Welsh. And every, you know, the more you looked at Wales, the more there seemed to 
uh, to be able to discover. You'd stumble across new stuff. I was 16, 17, up in the, the Welsh Valleys, you'd find new cut mark stones that weren't on the map. Nobody knew about them. I'd write to the Royal Commission and ask for, for records. Um, so this sort of this land of opportunity idea with Wales, really. And I was a toss up between going to art college when I was about 15, 16. And then I sort of changed to archaeology proper for university. But I remember my career's advice when I was in A-levels, my career's advice was, was that I wasn't doing any science subjects for A-levels, so I couldn't be an archaeologist because I needed science subjects. Um, and I don't know, I, I hear that sometimes from people, that they think it's a science discipline. Um, but yeah, so I you know, um, applied to Southampton, took a year off, uh, cycled uh, from Cardiff, cycled around Stonehenge and, and Avebury and camped. <laughs> I camped on the King Barrow Ridge above Stonehenge for about nice. two or three days in the rain. And uh, my, my only source of plumbing was the, uh, the toilet at Stonehenge, you know, there under the basement <laughs> there in the, the underpass. So I was, I've got quite fond memories of the Stonehenge complex as it was at the tunnel. <laughs> uh, so I sort of cooked my potatoes and stuff in the rain up in King Barrow Ridge and go and brush my teeth in the toilets down in Stonehenge. <laughs> um, so that was good. That was, that was my A-level summer. And then uh, my year off, I cycled around Ireland to go to see Newgrange and stuff. Oh. And then interrail to Brittany and, and Italy. And um, I half thought I'd better do it now because I may, may not get back to them. You know, when I'm older, and I, I still haven't been back to Brittany, you know, since then uh, and, and places. Um, and um, so that was good, but I was lucky. I got, Southampton was great, Southampton University, digging in southern Spain with Simon Kay and stuff on the Roman town and things. Um, and in my summers, I was I applied to go on um, the Lahoud B excavations on Jersey. So the first excavation of Lahoud B, 1991, 10 of us, you know, and I wrote a really passionate letter how I was really excited about going to Jersey and, and working on this and, and got the place, which is brilliant. So there's like 10 of us and the days when you're paid, you know, 50 pound a week to be there as well with tax-free beer. Um, <laughs> and you'd have the use of the uh, Jersey Museum service four-wheel drive at the weekends to go to the beach. I mean, it was heavenly days, you know, four weeks out in Jersey. It was amazing. Uh, excavating the outer cairn of, of oh. Lahoopi Passage Grove. It's, it's great. One of the, it's like a European style passage grave on the Channel Islands. It's amazing. Um, and I went back there in 1992 to, to do more work at Lahoopi as well. Uh, so that was great. So that took me through university. And the summer digs were great. I was remember the summer digs, you know, when, like I said, when you get paid to go there and you get catered as well, you get food provided. Um, nowadays, you have to pay to go on summer digs and get training. So it's a tough, tough change, really, isn't it, really? Um, and, uh, and then I graduated in 93 and fell straight into a first job at Suffolk Archaeological Unit out on the Skull Bypass in Suffolk. So I was back on home territory, back near the family. So I was sleeping in a camper van at the stepmom's house when I was uh, digging on the, uh, the, the thing there. Um, and, and then working in Essex and Cambridge, a winter working in Cambridge at Hingston, excavating an Anglo-Saxon <laughs> village in the clay, Oof. which was pretty tough. Um, and, and then Elms Farm in Essex, which is a big Romano British small town, which is a major million pound developer funded excavation. Uh, by English Heritage because they, they sort of agreed planning for housing on this field. Um, and once they started stripping the tops off, they realised that they had deep Iron Age, late Iron Age Roman stratigraphy. So that's a really complicated site. So um, fantastic days, you know. And you learn so much on the digging circuit, don't you? You're learning every day. Um, 
but it's 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 fabulous days, but it's tough. It's tough brushing snow off your section in the morning <laughs> uh, to start work, you know. Um, and um, uh, in the September of that year, I, I uh, saw the ad. Well, my mum posted the advert on from from Cardiff for this Royal Commission job as an air survey officer to do mapping, effort and mapping. And I had never done that before, but um, I was. I did. I do a lot of cartooning and stuff. I did in those days and stuff as well. And, and I was looking at options then to, to go either become a teacher, get a PGC training, maybe go into heritage interpretation. So I've done some on-site interpretation for Elms Farm, which got into Heritage Learning Magazine with English Heritage, which was quite fun. Um, so I had. I was looking at options. I think you have to if you if you if you're on the digging circuit mm. and you're living in condemned housing. Um, it's a tough one. Um, and the job came along. Went for interview in Wales. Um, and uh, there was someone on the train from the Cambridge University uh, FOTO unit. I thought, well, that's me stuffed, you know, because <laughs> an expert coming along as well, you know. Um, but it's like all things that air photo, you had to look at the interview, you had to look at air photographs and talk them through the archaeology you see on the air photographs. And that's what we've done since, you know, with every other appointment we've had in the air photography in the Royal Commission. And it, it's just talking through archaeology, it seemed fairly straightforward to me. You know, if you've got a crop marker of a Roman fort, you can look at it, you can see there's phasing at the gateway, you can see post holes, you can see whether the road's been cut by a secondary ditch or an annex. You can see some of the marks are just where the farmer's been driving a tractor. You know, it seemed quite straightforward. So I just talked through it all and, and got the job, which is which is really lucky. Um, and uh, that got me to the Royal Commission. Would you say that was quite an early phase in your career or how, how long you've been on the dig circuit for? A couple of years on the dig circuit, nearly a couple of years, got to assistant supervisor with Essex. Um, so. Um, uh, that was an in intense learning process, working with lots of um, uh, ex-MOLAS uh, people in Essex as well, really good people who'd been digging all the deep urban stratigraphy, uh, some of the people who'd been moving some of the big cemeteries in London as well, the big sort of Victorian cemeteries, the lead coffins, so really learning from these people who'd, who'd done it. But I did want to go back to Wales at some point, and the idea at interview, I said, do you want to leave the digging circuit? You know, do you want to come to an office? And, and I really did, actually, and, and start developing my skills there, really. So it was a career-defining moment in terms of taking the leap for the interview and just just taking grabbing the ball by the horns and, and being successful with it? But it's, it's all chance, isn't it? It's all chance. I was working, you know, summer in Essex, having a great time. My mum sends this photocopied advert from the Western Mail newspaper, <laughs> which says, I thought this might interest you. And then below that, I better post this now. It's getting late. I'm going to sit in the for a few days. Uh, and I had a friend there who'd been doing a photo mapping for Essex County Council, so I felt duty-bound to tell him about the job as well. Um, which my mum said, oh, why do you do that? But you have to, don't you? <laughs> Everybody's looking for the next job on, a, on, a, on the circuit. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and the Royal Commission, I've been writing to them since I was 17, asking for plans of stone circles and things. I was that sad, you know. And they've got lots of my old reports I sent them when I was sort of 17, 18. So they, they say, pull out sometimes. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it, it, you know, 1995 Royal Commission, small organisation, tucked up in Aberystwyth, um, but such huge opportunity working with Chris Musson, who was the aerial investigator, the flyer. He had all the European links through the Aerial Archaeology Research Group. So by 1996, we were doing a summer flying training school in Hungary with Otto Brasch, the great German aerial archaeologist, just as Hungary is peeling back from, from the Cold War. So the photographs took in the air during the day. The reels of film had to be checked by the police uh, after they were developed to check there was no... Um, and they sensitive um, uh, former East European air bases and stuff on them. 
So I was, had the job of sorting the films out. So I was the photo police. They, they dubbed me. Um, and then, <laughs> you know, flying schools in Poland in 1998, fl flying with colleagues, Michael Donais in Austria in 1999. So doing aerial archaeology in Austria. I mean, you know, the Carnon to Roman town. So they're great days. Yeah, it's really good. Um, and Chris retired in 1997. So I took over the flying. Um, and then, yeah, aerial archaeology research group. I got into that as a chair of that for three years in the early 2000s. So I had to organize conferences in Europe and stuff. But it's been, yeah, I've been at the Royal Commission uh, quite a long time now. That's quite a long time. Um, <laughs> you let slip there that you, you took over the flying. Now, that, that, that sort of implies that you, you, you've, you, you fly the aircrafts. Is, 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 that, is that right? No, I don't. No, no. So I, oh, okay. I, I did aerial photography for Wales um, in, 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 in Wales. And, uh, and there aren't many aerial archaeologists in Britain. There's, there's me in Wales and there's, there's four or five guys and girls in, uh, in English heritage. Sorry, England now, Damien and the team up in York. Dave Cowley and Lucas up in Scotland as well. Um, but it's quite a niche profession, really. Hmm. Um, you hire the plane and pilot, you sit in the left-hand seat okay. in the cockpit and you photograph out of the window um, and you're up looking for crop marks. Um, and uh, you know, in the summer, summer drought, you're looking at this soil moisture deficit uh, readings in the summer. You're looking at the agricultural readings for drought, uh, which, which show you if archaeology is showing. You're up in the winter in snow and melting frost and low light uh, to discover archaeology. Um, and back in the day, aerial photo photographs are still a novelty. You know, you start people selling these door to door. You knock on your house and selling a photograph of your of your house in the air. Um, I think Google Earth. I think I looked it up for a publication a couple of years ago. It's about two thousand and five or something. Google Earth came along. Maybe a bit later. It's very late. Um, and so, uh, in the last few years, we re sort of reappraised how aerial photography works and fits. And now we've got drones as well. And I got my drone qualification a couple of years ago with this European project we're doing with Ireland and Wales. Um, but you still need an archaeologist in the plane. Um, it's interesting. It's part of that archaeological toolkit. So the person with the drone, that gets you the two centimeter photogrammetric model. That's your local recording, you know, 500 meter line of sight. That's, that's the best way to record a hill fort or a church or a bit of coastal landscape, brilliant. But if you want to do the whole of South Wales in three hours, because there's a drought and it's raining on Thursday, which will wipe the drought out, you need a Cessna aircraft because nothing else is going to do it for you. And you need to be up there for three to five hours and getting 800 to 1,000 pictures taken before it starts raining because that's, that's your evidence and that will go again. You know, So, so the aircraft... Uh, still has a role uh, in this busy technological world we're in now. That's really interesting because it's so easy to kind of see the, see the rise of a drone and think of it as something yeah, that's yeah. completely replaced uh, kind of aircraft-based photography. But it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's great and quite reassuring to know that it's still got a, an important role in archaeology because, it's, because it's, it's one of those, for me, it's one of the, the defining evolutions in our understanding of the past I, I did a lecture on it just last week um where i kind of talked about the, the two or three big changes in in british archaeology at least and mm. the the past and the particularly prehistory british prehistory the density of of the resource coming into existence with the arrival of aerial photography i don't think anything's mm. since replaced that geophysics perhaps to some degree but i think that that change of having a, a landscape dominated by visible monuments to one where holy heck there's stuff everywhere um 
it, it's it's I'm glad to know it's still going strong. <laughs> it is amazing. We we uh, well along with the three agencies, uh, Scotland, England, and Wales, about ten years ago, wasn't it? We digitised the Aerofilms collection, big lottery funded project, and you can find them all online. Uh, we've got them in Wales, and we've got the original negatives, the world stuff, and you've got like nineteen nineteen. Well, that was when they founded nineteen twenty one, early twenties air photographs of Welsh villages like Hay on Wye. Um, we put some in a book a couple of years ago uh, and uh, you get that high resolution TIFF file on screen and zoom in. Uh, these guys are flying into Haviland biplane with leather gloves on and a double handled glass plate camera <laughs> on the side of the biplane in an age when you didn't have the biplanes didn't yeah. appear over your village and you can this, this view over hay on white everybody's stepping out of their doors there's people pinning washing on the line the back garden's looking up and this thing's thundering over at about you know maybe 300 feet 400 feet uh, which i wouldn't be allowed to do nowadays and that's a, that's a heck of a time in history and you've got similar views over cardiff you've got about 300 feet over cardiff in uh, 1929, 1930, and and thundering over the, all the coal smoke coming out of the houses, they're amazing images. And um, yeah, yeah, it's it's been a century of discovery, and yet you go up in a drought like 2018, and you're still getting brand new henges, brand new Roman forts, brand new monuments. Uh, and I don't know how, but we still are, which is great. That's so good. I I've got I'm, I'm I've got too many questions. This is too yes. exciting the discussion. I'm, 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 the beauty of doing this podcast is we get to invite people that we find really yeah. interesting. So I'm, I apologise to our listeners if they if there's a slight niche to them, but um, but I mean, there's, there's so many so many things. So am I right in th- in saying that OGS Crawford is sort of the original aerial photography yeah, yeah, yeah. archaeology in the 1930s. Well, you had Wessex in the air, didn't you? When was that? Correct, that, so 1928. Uh, yeah. I have to look it up. Um, when Wessex, the Salisbury Plain, was earthworks, you know, before intensive agriculture. Uh, so OGS Crawford and Alexander Keeler, I think, put that together, didn't they? Uh, it'd be embarrassing if after the edit we find I'm wrong. But uh, yeah, he's the <laughs> grandfather of air photography. Um, mm. And then you had RKA St. Joseph and David Wilson, who formed the uh, Cambridge University flying team. Uh, ex uh, Royal Air Force uh, chaps. I-, I don't know how they did it. I mean, you know, they didn't have. I've got a GPS now. They'd be up in the mm. 1950s, following the drought from south southern England through to Wales, through to the Scotland, so to pursue the Roman frontiers and the Roman forts and camps, um, with a bag of maps in the plane uh, and a camera, but I'm able to locate every every shot they took. Uh, it's an incredible bit of record keeping. Uh, that we have there um, so yeah real pioneers and then just just quickly so using your the 2018 drought as an example here perhaps mm. is you, a, a drought perhaps springs up perhaps unexpectedly or or, or it's stronger than you than you're than we were expecting mm. what you, you mentioned you're going to collect between 800 and a thousand photographs like what's mm. how how do you deliver that in terms of there's got to be an element of planning and getting up and getting permissions and then you've got 800 photos to archive and I mean, what what's what's the number of people involved the the time length pre during and post and is, is it quite a big thing to coordinate yeah i mean we get uh, we have a consortium with the with the historic england of scotland so we get the from april through to august we get these very boring things called soil moisture deficit smds uh, don't get archaeologists started on SNDs. That's the, that's an agricultural weekly reading between the amount of water that goes in the roots of the plant 
and how much is evaporated out of the leaves. And if more is going out of the leaves than it's going in the roots, the plant's under stress, you get crop stress. And that's when you start seeing archaeology in a crop. So if you've got your lawn in a wet summer, your lawn's green, it's lush, it's knee deep. And in a dry summer, it's barely growing and over the old gravel paths, it's gonna parch out and go yellow. And over your old flower beds, it's gonna stay deep and lush because it's got deep earth underground. And that's what's happening in a drought with ditches of prehistoric forts or the walls of a Roman villa. Um, so you can start to see a drought developing April, May, June uh, 2018. Not much rain in April, <clears throat> not much rain in May. Go flying, you're still not seeing any archaeology because everything's still drying off. And we'd had the beasts on the east in 2018, so the ground had been blitzed in April by this frost and ice. Uh, so it's exceptionally dry ground. Um, and then uh, when it starts hitting 100, each, each little uh, sort of uh, 40 meter square, 40 kilometer square in Wales, it started getting 100, that's when crop marks start showing. And pretty soon the whole map was over 100. Uh, you know you've got crop marks everywhere. So then, well, you've got the plane on standby at Hapford West and the pilots know what you want to do and you're quite a good customer. So you hope you can book the plane three or four times a week if nobody else needs it. Um, so you book that out, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I want you all day, each, each day. Um, and you've got plenty of batteries uh, and, and, and so on as well. Then you have to see where your research priorities are. And um, there's an old thing in aerial photography of people stamp collecting. That's what people always accuse some of the older aerial archaeologists of doing, stamp collecting. That's flying to Hard Knock Roma Fort every summer and taking a picture of it because it looks great. Um, would. Who wouldn't? Um, <laughs> But what we, what we do in the 2018 drought is you specifically leave the really amazing areas like maybe Roman Kylie and, uh, and, uh, and other places where you know people have been photographing crop marks for 50 years and you go to the awkward, difficult areas, push into central Wales, push into the damp parts of northeast Wales, Gwent, the Claylands, get in there, see what's showing and, and, and then every single site out there is a bonus, uh, is a big win. Um, and during the 2018 summer, we have problems. We've got to try to get into Brecon a couple of times. And the military have big UAV warnings up. They're doing military drone stuff. So the airspace is closed. Cardiff airspace is very busy in summer with the international airport. Uh, so you fudge around. You find yourself flying somewhere you didn't expect. And underneath the plane, you get amazing crop marks. Um, but we had great revelations. You know, there's a, there's a big Roman fort down near... Um, uh, well, east of Abergavenny, which is the least uh, sexy Roman fort anywhere in <laughs> Wales. It's called Penagaya. Every year it shows grass. It's just grass. It's this lump with some houses built around it. And the Claude Powers Trust did some excavations there a few years ago and found stuff. But 2018, everything was shown like an x-ray. All the Roman fort, the Principia buildings, barracks, a new annex to the fort, a new external courtyard building to the fort, the roads... Uh, astonishing stuff so yeah that's what keeps you going nice but, but it was busy I mean you, you're, you're fighting everybody you're fighting the media and the radio and everybody in those sort of years because the, the story gets out but but um, yeah it causes months of work afterwards that's incredible so so I mean you've done a really nice job there sort of covering your your career to date um, your career in ruins if, if you want to coin a term <laughs> um, uh, of all during that that time, whether it's in the Royal Commission or pre pre Royal Commission, is there is there a bit of work you're particularly proud of or pleased with that the results have been really smart or a collaboration or anything like that? Yeah, I've been thinking about that. I mean, um, 
the, the Cherish project I'm involved at the moment um, is, is brilliant. A uh, big Island of Wales project um, looking at climate change and coastal heritage. And people can look that up. And that's great. But that really came from uh, the Scombe Island project. And, uh, you know, the Scombe Island project that uh, uh, me and, uh, and three colleagues ran, uh, it still fills me full of pride and excitement. Um, and, and I think I'm really pretty proud of that. Um, we started back in 2008, uh, my colleague Louise in the Royal Commission, and then Bob Johnson from Sheffield and Oliver Davis from Cardiff. Um, initial revelations in the air. Scomer Island is off Pembrokeshire. It's one of the best preserved prehistoric field systems in, in Western Britain. It's incredible. It's studied in the 50s, studied in the 1980s, um, and published in 1990 in Prehistoric Proceedings as the definitive map. Um, and in 2008, I noticed lots of new stuff on a, a winter flight from the air. So we commissioned LIDAR in 2011. Um, but SCOMA is a real uh, treasured wildlife landscape. It's treasured for its puffins, its Manx shearwaters. It's owned and managed for the Wildlife Trust of South and West Wales. And we went out there in 2009 with a caddy warden and, and everybody said, you can't dig there. It's too precious. They won't let you dig. Uh, the landscape's very fragile. It's covered in Manx shearwater burrows. Um, but we work with people. We have friends and colleagues that we could talk to. Caddy didn't seem to have a problem. The Wildlife Trust thought it would be interesting. The Islands Advisory Committee helped us. Uh, and then, uh, you know, in uh, 2012, uh, my colleague and Bob and, and Ollie started going out there doing some geophysics, started making inroads. The very first geophysics on SCOMA, dragging all the Sheffield uh, magnetometry kit out there. 2014, the very first modern excavation on SCOMA, which is a three-day slit trench through a mound of burnt stone, which yielded the first archaeological radiocarbon dates for the island, one underneath the mound of burnt stone, Middle Late Iron Age, and then a cattle tooth hanging in the section of this mound of burnt stone, which I found when I was drawing the section, and I hoped it wasn't 19th century, and it turned out to be Late Iron Age cattle tooth, um, which showed that. <laughs> and the first, you know, even the first flint scraper in, in situ there uh, from, from SCOMA, and then and we did lots more digging out there in 2017. Uh, we got Aber Uni, Aberystwyth University, in to do some luminescence uh, sampling. And that produced a whole new set of dates, first middle to late Bronze Age farming dates for SCOMA and some medieval dates for farming as well. So, you know, it's always fun working on an island, isn't it? It's, it's fun getting a ferry out there, getting a boat out there, staying in the island accommodation, um, uh, you know, swimming in the evenings off the island, waking up in the morning at sunrise to see the puffins. Um, but it's just revolutionised our understanding of that island. So, you know, it's been been great. That sounds like an incredible project. And I, I, I should probably confess that in around, it would either have been 2011 or 2012, I was possibly competing with Bob for some of that geophysics equipment. So it, it's, uh, it was in great demand oh, right. at the time. Oh, right. I, yeah, yes. I was at Sheffield at the time. Um, so it's a small one. I think we lost, we lost a... a we lost one of the probes over the side of the boat on the way back once, I think. It went into the sea, so <laughs> that's in Jack's sound. Oh, it's incredible. And I, I, you mentioned you mentioned Envy very early on in the podcast, but um, sort of moving on from that project, is there, are there, are there any others out there that kind of you, you look at with kind of envious eyes and think, oh, man, I wish I was on that project. I'd love to have been involved in that. Well, I'm getting older, as I said. Have I already mentioned that? Uh, I started to sort of, uh, you know, think of the things I'd like to do, um, and uh, 
I think, uh, yeah, I mean, Lawrence digging on Easter Island is one of the things, actually, you know, that's, I'm pretty, pretty envious oh, of that. Have I mentioned I've been digging on Easter Island? I did. What? <laughs> have you been to Easter Island? Yeah. <laughs> that's a good one. The islands called me, and I first got to Orkney finally in 2017 for a conference, and it's like, finally got there after looking at all the books and looking at all the maps. You know, from when I was like 16, 17 years old, finally got there, finally went to Kewin, Widderford Hill, Mize Howe, thank heaven, you know. And uh, there's some amazing work going on on some of the islands. Like, like I mentioned, the, the St Kilda Iron Age stuff. Yes, I'll, I'll certainly have a month out there if I can. Um, <laughs> on the Hebrides, they've been fishing, was it? Like a couple of years ago, they were fishing Neolithic pots out of lakes on the Hebrides. They're diving on these crenogs, which they thought were Iron Age, and some of them are Neolithic. Uh, amazing stuff there. But I have to say, closer to home, uh, I've always admired the work the Discovery Programme guys do in Ireland, uh, guys and girls, uh, Anthony, particularly Anthony Corns and Rob Shaw, long before I was able to work with them with Cherish, I always looked at what the Discovery Programme did. High-end laser scanning, you know, helicopter, helicopter LIDAR of the Hill of Tara and stuff, for heaven's sake, yeah. Uh, there are days when nobody was doing that. Um, and one thing Discovery Programme have on their patch is a Skellig Monastery, Skellig Island, uh, Skellig Michael off, off the southwest Kerry coast where they film Star Wars, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I haven't made it out there yet. Uh, I, I keep trying to get out there with the Cherish Project. Uh, I might do. I was meant to fly it last year uh, and that didn't happen because of lockdown. Um, but uh, last um, last winter, uh, Rob Shaw and Sandra Henry from the Discovery Programme went out to Skellig Monasteries to do some monitoring. And you've got the Skellig Monastery, so you've got this in, impenetrable peak in the in the middle of the sea. You've got the main monastery and beehive huts, which people know from Star Wars. And then this saddle of ground, and then this steps up to the hermitage on this other peak. And then when you get to the top of that, there's these sort of medieval steps carved out of the rock to the very highest summit of Skellig Michael, which Rob has been up to, sort of roped on with his laser scanner. And I've seen the photographs and yeah, I'd love to go. Oh, when I, I go, I don't know, but that's where I'd love to go and work, yeah. I think I share your envy there, to be honest. That would be, what, what a place to visit, oh, absolutely stunning. Oh yeah, one day, one day, yeah. Putting that laser scanner on the top of there must have been the, the, the <laughs> finest moment of his life, just plonking it on going, yep. First person to put a laser scanner here. <laughs> that's, that's your career high, just uh, sort of ticked off there, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. You can sort of see that happen as it happens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. good choice, good choice. Um, so so we're sort of coming towards the end of the interview now, Toby, and we, we finish all of our interviews off with, with the same, well, we, we do all the same questions, but we've, we've, we've finished them with this specific <laughs> question. Um, and Derek and I have got a working time machine and we give all our, our participants free return tickets so you can go... Uh, you can move in time and space. So all, all we need to know is is where you'd like to go and what you'd like to see and, and why. <laughs> I'll tell you, well, what an opportunity, eh? What an opportunity. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I thought about whether I'd like to go to a Roman bathhouse in Upland Wales in sort of 150 AD, but it uh, might be a bit rough in there with all the soldiers. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, with a, with a howling gale that side. Uh, but I'd probably be rather boring and predictable. Uh, I haven't done my PhD and things in the Iron Age hill forts. Um, I'd, I'd like to go to a local hill fort in, in, here in Ceredigion on the West Wales coast, just outside Aberystwyth, we've got Pendinus Hill Fort, and I've studied it and seen all the 1930s dig uh, photographs of it. But um, if I had a time machine, you know, it, it bothers me that we sit here, uh, we sit here with jeans and t-shirts and we've got telephones and televisions and, and stuff, and we think about what Iron Age people did 
Um, when you think about how they built their gates and they, and they, they thought about monumentality and gateway architecture and, uh, and all this, and maybe had rituals to, to choose the hill that they were going to build on uh, and so on. But did they really? Did they actually? You know, is that just my 21st century preconceptions of, of the Iron Age? So I'd love to land the time machine, uh, put on some suitable attire and walk up the hill during construction of a hill fort, uh, presumably after the, the, you know, they'd been busy felling nearby woodland and dragging these massive trees up the hill to form the palisades. And then maybe when they got the visiting architect from Herefordshire or the borders, who knows all about building hill fort gates to advise the locals. Um, I don't know what language I'd speak. I'd probably have to stumble by in some broken Welsh and see if that got me anywhere. Um, and I might get uh, slingshots thrown at me. I might get my skull cracked by a slingshot before I've even got anywhere near the gate if they didn't know who I was. Um, but I think that would be an interesting scene, a construction scene on a hill fort, and an hour or two with a beer with the, the, the person in charge to have a chat with them about what their vision was for the, for the hill fort and, and the design mm. of it. That, that's probably where I'd go, yeah. <laughs> I, I think I'd absolutely love to join you there, to be honest, that, that moment of just, just asking the question, mm. how on earth have you designed this thing here that looks so similar to that one on the other side of the country? How did, how did that happen? Yeah. Maybe it's a touring architect. <laughs> <laughs> touring architect, but they're just, just you know, feeding everybody every day when they're, when they're sort of, uh, you know, using an ad to sort of pare down a few tree trunks or 300 tree trunks, you know, thing like Danbury. Um, extraordinary. Who's farming where they're cutting the woodland down? You know, um, or is that not an issue? That's not important because it all has to be done. Um, so yeah, interesting questions. Yeah, it's a phenomenal use of a time machine, and I, I it's, it's certainly not a wasted ticket. I, I applaud that one. Um, thank you very much, Toby, for joining us on the podcast today. It's been a, a thoroughly enjoyable one for both Lawrence and I, and we hope our listeners have enjoyed us nerding out slightly about something we're both quite keen on listening to. Um, the theory goes, if we enjoy it, then hopefully they will. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for joining us. Um, thank you to all our listeners for hanging in there. Um, we we see a few of you listen to our last episode. For thank you very much for that. We'll try and get them coming out a bit more frequently if we can but um, as all of our regular listeners know the podcast is something we do for fun and joy and pleasure when whenever we can we will do one so hopefully we'll be with you very soon um, with another episode so watch this space thank you very much